0: Well, good morning, church. You're looking good. We're going to begin a two-part series starting this weekend and finishing next weekend, and I just called it Living an Unbroken Life. I'm basing it on the book and movie, Unbroken. Actually I was going to do it a lot later, but I got afraid that everybody would forget about it. But while it's Angelina Jolene put it into a movie about an actual guy named Louis Zamperini an incredible individual, a true story. The book is nothing like the movie. It's way always more, but you know, in a movie, I tell people you can only condense 95 years of a life, but it's an incredible story of survival, resilience, and redemption. Now, it's not a sermon. Uh, It can't be. I'm just I was I was impressed. I I was strengthened and encouraged at the the spirit of this guy who suffered every indignity possible and never broke. His favorite saying was, if you can take it, you can make it. I still believe that. If you can take it, you can make it. I've been married 41 years. If you can take it, you can make it. <laughs> ah, some of you old toots, you couldn't take it a week, okay. But it is true. And uh, I thought, if we were a home group, and we were—we had some coffee, and we're sitting around comfortable, and we're going to talk, I just want to pull three main thoughts that spoke to me out of that movie. So it's not a sermon. I'm just going to kind of extemporaneously share with you a little bit. And I hope it has something to say to all of us. This guy, Louis Samparini, he started smoking at five years of age. He started picking up cigarette butts while walking to kindergarten. This is some dude, right? Take a look at the screens. This is Louis Zamperini at age 81. He took up skateboarding in his 70s. I just think this guy's spirit is so cool. That's the kind of a person I want to hang around, you know. And so, here's a man who spent 48 days on a life raft in the Pacific after his plane crashed. And we're going to look at survival and resilience, and next week, redemption, and see what we can learn that I call lessons from the raft. How do you hold on when everything around you says, give up? When you're on the raft, what could God possibly be up to in your life or mine when it looks like your life is over? And by the way, you don't have to be in a rubber dinghy in the Pacific. Your raft could be marriage, a health issue, a financial issue, one of your children. It it could be business. Everybody will have one, a raft. About the only thing I know that's common to all of us in this room, trouble. Some form or other, everybody gets it. You say, well, I had not had any. Well, hold on, dude. It's coming. Okay. Coming soon to a church near you, or a home near you, because God says it's common. So let's look at some lessons from the wrath. How do you hold on when everything around you says give up? I want to start with Romans 5, verse 3 and 5. This is the Apostle Paul. He says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, in our trouble, in our tribulation. No, that doesn't make me feel very happy, because we know suffering or tribulation produces perseverance, endurance, the ability to go on. Perseverance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint because God's love has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who's been given to every one of us who believe. Now the idea that suffering can actually produce growth in your character, can actually produce stronger people, was widely embraced in the ancient world. Thinkers in Greece and Rome would actually write what they called hardship lists. Paul mentioned some of his. He was beaten three times with a Roman cat-of-nine tails, thrown in prison repeatedly, robbed by bandits, shipwrecked a day and a night in the deep in the ocean. This guy just had one storm after another, after another. And so, uh, the ancients would write down really difficult experiences they had been through, and then they would talk about how the difficulty, how the hardship, made a wise person stronger or better. You will never get stronger comfortable. You will never grow comfortable. And when you get comfortable, you don't do squat. And I'm going to, if you, let's say you buy the best workout shoes on the market, and you spend 160 bucks for them. You got the cutest looking little Nike outfit on. You join Gold's Gym or Lifetime Fitness or LA, whatever, they're everywhere. And you go in, you dress up, and you just walk around the gym. You ain't going to lose a pound. You're not going to gain any muscle until you face a little tribulation. You got to push some weight. And when you start pushing weight, it hurts. But as it hurts, it hurts less. And what you notice is that you start burning fat. You start building muscle. You start losing some of that weight. You start — you become lean and mean. And it didn't come out of sitting home eating nachos. It came because you you pushed adversity. I'm just trying to use a simple illustration to say, I've never made a significant growth move in my life until I face trouble. Can I trust God economically when it looks like it's really bad? We went through that crisis in 08 in this nation and the world. And I wondered, we had just moved. I wondered, will we survive giving down 40? I had, well, I trust God. My faith had to be strong. I had to encourage people. I didn't show despair. I thought about it, but I, 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 had, to, I had to encourage and stand on something. made me strong. Every adversity I faced in life, no matter what it is, has made me a stronger person. Now, that's the kind of a person God hopes that you grow into to become not one that sucks his thumb, goes into a fetal position, and says, I want my mommy. You can't do that forever. That's okay when you're a little child, but you're supposed to grow up as a Christian believer, and we're not supposed to fall apart when trouble strikes. So, everybody gets a hardship. Paul adds one word that Greek and Roman writers would never have have used or added, nor could they think about it. We'll come back to it in a minute. It's called hope. They couldn't imagine that. So, did Louis Zapparini have a hardship list? Well, probably one of the most impressive of all time. Lewis was first a juvenile delinquent, he was also a little thief. He became an Olympic track star, he became a bombardier on B 24. His plane got shot up to the tune of 594 bullet holes in just one encounter. Look at the screens, there's one of the bullet holes. Actually, a 20 millimeter cannon. That might Send your uniform to the cleaners after that little episode, right? He was in another plane that crashed into the Pacific Ocean. The only survivors were Lewis, the pilot Phil, a tail gunner named Mac. Phil had a wound to his head, and Lewis thought he might not survive. Mac, on the other hand, snapped, lost it, had no hope. And the only food provisions they had on that raft for the three of them, Mac ate all by himself completely on the first night I would have thrown Mac over see tribulation will produce things in you and the dark side of me would have come out real fast in that raft I said Mac you ate everything we had in one night you sorry whizzy wuss I'm gonna I'm gonna let a shark have a good meal with you tonight too I'm just just talking now, guys, we're just talking how you feel. You can imagine how Lewis felt. They're surrounded every day by sharks that keep bumping into that little two-man dinghy. They're attacked at one point by a great white shark. At one point, they'd been on the ocean for 48 days. A plane spots them. They're euphoric. They think the Allies have seen them. Maybe hope is coming, but it turns out to be a Japanese warplane that comes down on them and strafes them with machine guns. Lewis said they jumped under the raft into the ocean to evade the bullets. The raft ended up getting forty-eight bullet holes in it. You think you had a bad day, forty-eight bullet holes in it. While he's under the water evading bullets, he'd have to push away sharks that would try coming after him. Their lips and skin were burned. Their feet were cratered with sores the size of quarters. Their thirst was maddening. Their food deprivation was so severe, Lewis lost over one hundred pounds. This former Olympic athlete ended up weighing 66 pounds. One night, an albatross landed on Lewis's head. He said they were so skeletal that they were not recognizable as human beings, and the albatross probably didn't know that they were, and it landed on Lewis's head. It wakes him up. It takes him about two minutes to stir, and moving very slowly, he catches the bird. They end up using it mostly for bait because it was so foul-tasting they just threw up. Now that happened again, and then it happened a third time. By the third time it happened, they were so starved, this is what Lewis said, we ate the entire bird with gusto. This time it tasted like a hot fudge sundae. I ate the eyeballs and all the rest. You say, I know, because you ain't been that hungry. Now Phil, the pilot reminds Lewis that killing an albatross is supposed to bring bad luck. (laughs) Let's think of this for a moment. Their planes crashed in the Pacific Ocean. They're on a raft. They've got no food, no water, no medicine, no shelter. The Allies can't find them. The enemy spotted them, tried to kill them. The sharks are trying to eat them. They're dehydrated. They're blistered skeletons waiting to die. And old Phil says, might be bad luck. (laughs) Lewis said, you idiot, what more bad luck could we have? So let's take a lesson or two or three from a raft to see how it could apply to us. Lesson number one. These are just my extemporaneous thoughts, not a prepared sermon, okay? Number one, trouble, whether it's in their raft or yours. Trouble has a way of revealing your character. A crisis doesn't make a hero or a coward. It does not. It just reveals what's in there. And even you didn't know it was in there. What's in you comes out when it gets squeezed. That's true for all of us. <coughs> and honestly, sometimes you don't know what's in you until it gets tested. And God tests everything. Everything gets tested. Abraham's called the father of our faith. <laughs> well, how did he get such an honor? He got tested. I'd say that's a test. You're going to be the father of many nations. Yeah, and you're 100, and your wife's 90, and she looks like 40 miles of bad road, and you're going to believe God. How many of you know you better have a little bit of hope going on there somehow? And this guy, hang on, he—I mean, you know, whatever happened. i never hear anybody preach on this, ever. But it's right in your Bible. Here's a 100-year-old man—you've seen a 100-year-old man, and a 90-year-old woman—you've seen her. The lust factor goes way down, way, way down, right? And God said, "You're gonna have a baby," and this ought to encourage somebody. So, what? Something happens in that tent that night, and God restores their youth. And I only—it's re- implied because Abimelech wants her for his harem. Now, either he's on dope, or she's a beautiful woman, and God has restored her and him because God says her womb is dead. At 90, it's over. There's no hot time in the old house tonight, not now. And they have a baby. And, God, and I thought, I'd like a touch of that. <laughs> Give me some of that, Lord. And it happened. If God says you're going to have a baby, I don't care what the doctor says, paint a room. Get you a bassinet. Make pl- if God promised you're going to be a ruler, if God promised you something, circumstances will not matter. If God has to back up the sun 10 degrees, open the Red Sea, or feed you with a raven, an unclean bird, He'll do it. You've got to understand that's how He works. But when you get in trouble, you'll find out whether you're a person of faith or fear. You'll find out, do you have strong faith? Can you trust God with your money? Can you trust God in a difficult situation in a marriage? You'll find out in a crisis. And you won't find it out when you're comfortable. You'll never find out what's really in you, which is why God allows the test to come. So, here are three guys. They're in the same situation. They're in the same little raft, on the same ocean, facing the same odds. But in their minds and spirits, they respond differently. Mac gives up and dies, and they have to put him overboard. The other two, Phil and Lewis, somehow embrace this as a challenge. They engage how they think in their imagination, and that meant the difference between life and death. Here's what the writer of Proverbs says, Solomon, Proverbs 24:10. If you falter in time of trouble, how small is your strength? See, part of what trouble does is checks you out, shows you what you really believe, shows you where you really are in your spiritual life and in your character. Some guys cheat. Some guys steal when they get tested. Some guys quit and run, but you don't know till you get tested. So what? trouble does, part of it, is it tests my character, sees what you're made out of. The hardship list doesn't have to be as dramatic as drifting on the ocean. Everybody has a hardship list going on every day. Whether you're rich or poor or pretty or ugly, whether you're Asian or Hispanic or African American or white, everybody's got a hardship list, and God's at work in it. Proverbs seventeen three: the crucible is for silver. That's where the purity of silver gets tested. The furnace is for gold. That's where gold's tested, the fire. But the Lord tests the heart. God's real interested in my heart, because out of it are all the issues of life. And there's a way in which all of life, every day, is a test. How will I respond to an interruption? Not getting what I want? A health problem? Somebody getting in my way? Being disappointed? being criticized, being accused, misrepresented, having to wait. Oh, did I mention wait? Like impatient? Like 281 Highway? Impatient? Boy, when I, when I face a crisis, sometimes wonderful things come out of me. And in other situations, the dark side comes out in me. And I want to get out on 281, open my door, take a tire tool, jerk somebody through the car window, and just beat the tar out of them. They like, can't you drive? Now that's ugly. Now you don't see that in sweet nice me, unless I get squeezed, or they lose my luggage, and I say to the agent. You can fly this airplane at 650 miles an hour at 40,000 feet. You can find Los Angeles in the dark, in the fog, and you can't find my bag. Anybody witness to that with me? We're all different. But you put me in that, and I find out, oh there's something not so pretty inside me. needs needs a little adjustment by God. Trouble reveals my character. Trouble can be an opportunity to grow my character and make me stronger. Have you noticed that great comfort rarely brings great growth? It just doesn't. I hate that. I wish you grew when you're comfortable, but it doesn't happen. So get ready to be upset quite frequently (laughs) if God wants to grow you. Now trouble by itself doesn't produce growth. It can make you a bitter, mean, resentful, angry person. Trouble can produce all kinds of bad stuff. But if I can trust God in it, if I can live with poise and confidence and joy and not get all focused on myself, God can use trouble to bring growth in my life. Now that brings us to the next lesson on the raft. Desperate trouble reveals the truth about our human condition. Louis Zamperini's got to be one of the most resourceful guys I've ever read about. He writes this when he's an old guy in his 80s. Today, I am licensed, accomplished, or an expert in 84 fields. From skiing, to lifeguarding, to skydiving, to glacier climbing. (laughs) We got any 84 years old in here with those licenses? When he's on the raft, at one point a shark gets frustrated and actually leaps into the raft to attack Lewis. Imagine being in a raft, a little bitty thing, and a shark jumps out of the water into the raft. What would you do? Lewis said, I thrust both my palms against its nose, which stuck out a foot past the mouth, and I was able to shove the ravenous creature back into the sea. Unquote. On the raft, maybe the most resourceful guy in the world found that his existence was a gift over which he was not in charge. Because we always think, I'm in charge. Captain of my ship, master of my fate, I can make it happen. Well, think that until we get in a raft. And then we realize this ain't working. I can't fix myself. When the plane crashes, he writes, just to be on the safe side, just to be on the safe side. I thank God for saving our lives. My buddies prayed with me. He writes, of course, on the raft, that's what you mostly do. Of course. I mean, you can't watch TV. What else are you going to do? He said, on the raft, I was like everybody else. From the native who lived thousands of years ago on a remote island, to the atheist in a foxhole. When I got to the end of my rope, I finally looked up. Dr. Dallas Willard writes, God's address is at the end of your rope. And you have a rope. Yeah, you do. And it has an end. And if you hadn't gotten there yet, cheer up. You will one day. And that's where God is. It's not the only place He is, but He's there. Once they went six days with no rain. They had no water on the raft. They're dying of thirst. They've got nowhere to turn. They have no options. Lewis prays, kind of a bargain prayer. Ever done this? God, answer my prayer now. I promise if I get home through all of this, I'll serve you the rest of my life. Then Lewis writes, what else could I say? Given our miserable situation, devotion to God was about all we had to offer. I mean, what does anybody else have to offer God? Give me what I want, and I'll give you devotion and 20 bucks. But maybe devotion is all God really wants anyway. Lewis writes, when you're on the raft, no food, no water, no medicine, no radio, no engine, no bargaining chips, no diplomas, no office, no staff, no cash, no credit card, no desk, no promotion, no phone, you become aware instantly of your intense dependence on God. He writes, how slender is the thread from which your life really hangs. Wow. See, when your money won't help you, when your beauty won't help you, when your power and title won't help you, when you can't have access to your comforts that can make things happen, now it's just you and God. And that's, that's where you'll find Him, too. But that's, that's when you realize, I don't really have control over my life. I like to think I do, but, but I don't really. Now we kind of think of that life raft as a strange or abnormal way to live, but it's actually very real. What if self-sufficiency is the great illusion in the American culture? What if we have so many props around us that we live with the illusion, I'm in control. It takes God one second to prove to you, you aren't in control. Not if you can't buy it, not if you can't access it, not if you can't make it happen. If you've never been there, I can tell you that's a lonely place. I've been there. That was part of what drew me to the Lord. Go to the end of the rope. I can make it happen. I can always make it happen. I can fix this. I can change that. I can access this, and I know this person, and then the options are all out. Now, what are you going to do? You're going you're to—if you're smart, you're going to call out to God what you're going to do. Unfortunately, you don't have to wait that long. But— being stubborn and living with the illusion, I don't need any help. I can take care of it myself. I don't need God. Then I found out, boy, how desperately I did need Him. It's uh, Your self-sufficiency kind of control gets shattered. One day, God's Word comes to a church in Laodicea. They had this problem. They said, hey, I'm, I'm paraphrasing now, Revelation three seventeen. God says to him, oh, you say you're rich, you're on more TV channels, you've got multiple locations, uh, you've acquired wealth, and you don't need a thing. That's what they were saying. Now, nobody in San Antonio would ever think anything like that, would they? But in Laodicea, they did. And God says, but you don't realize you are in My sight wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. Now, that's what we all are in our sin and in our stubborn pride. And the lesson on the raft is, I desperately need God. And everything in what I call normal life is designed to make me forget Him. So don't wait for trouble to ask God to come near. Ask Him now. Ask Him before you ever get to the dumb raft. And He will. If He's good enough to die by or to call out in a, in a tragedy in a trouble, He's good enough to live by. Stay mindful of Him every single day in your wealth, in your health, in your uh, good life going, your career, hey, He's there. Wealth and riches come from God anyway. So anything I get, anything you get or we get, ultimately it didn't come from that industry or that. It came from God. It's a gift from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Acknowledge Him. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, business is going good for me. It ain't going good for some people, but it's going good for me. Thank you. Do you ever pray that, do you think? Or do you just wait till all of a sudden the resources are down, the economy goes south, and then you need prayer? No, no, no. Don't wait that long. Talk to Him every day. We just walk in a good relationship. He's your backup, man. The government's not your backup. Are you kidding me? You really? You think a federal agency is your backup? I I wouldn't think about it. It's funny. The IRS can arrest you and put you in jail for um, failing to report your income tax or to do it incorrectly or to lose your emails, but it's okay for them to cheat and lose their emails and say, nobody knows who did that, who targeted people. Interesting, isn't it? They can cheat and scandal and get away with it, but they'll put you in jail. Well, okay. IRS. I'm just trying to say to you, I realize every day I walk out of the house or wake up and got breath in my body. I am totally dependent on God. God's given me great friends. God's given me a great wife. God's given me a great ministry. God's given me a great opportunity, but I hang by a thread, and so do you. And one visit to a doctor's office can change everything. And I don't care how wealthy I am, I can't buy myself out of something that's no cure for it. It's inoperable. It's too late. I'd, ha- I'd need a miracle. And Don't wait that long. I- isn't it interesting that that's when we get really desperate about, about God? One of the amazing moments in the story is when they have this thing, sailors, call doldrums. That's when the ocean goes flat as glass, air does not move, there's no wind, everything is still. The sky looks like a pearl. It's transcendently beautiful. It's so still that Lewis says, when a fish breaks the surface a few hundred yards away, you can hear the sound with crystal clarity. And all of a sudden, dying on that ocean, he sees this incredible beauty that he's never noticed before, and there's God. The writer of the book, Unbroken, Laura Hildebrand, writes, quote, as Lewis watched this beautiful still world, Lewis played with a thought that had come to him many times before. He had thought of it as he watched hunting seabirds, marveling at their ability to adjust their dives in their wing positions to compensate for the refraction of light in water to nail a fish. He had thought of it as he had considered the pleasing geography of sharks, their graduation of color, their slide effortless through the sea. Such beauty, he thought, was too perfect to have come by mere chance. That day in the center of the Pacific was to him a gift deliberately crafted compassionately for him and Phil. Crafted by who? By God. Joyful and grateful in the midst of slow dying, the two men bathed in the majesty of the Creator. And what he had done? When you're busy and you're doing life, you don't notice stuff like that. When you got no options, you're just floating in a rubber dinghy with bullet holes in it. You see things you never saw before. Now, Lewis did get rescued, but when he got rescued, he did not devote his life to God like he said he would. He didn't do that for a long time. One last thought from Lessons from the Raft, and we'll look at that one next week. If deliverance is all I want God for, then when trouble goes away, my desire for God will go away. Isn't that true? It's one of the most common themes into the Bible, woe to them that are at ease in Zion. In times of suffering, people's minds and hearts run towards God. Oh, God, help me. Oh, God, save me. Oh, God, heal me. Oh, God, deliver me. Oh, God, 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 God. When the pain goes away, the oddest thing, I think about God less. I pray less often. I pray with less urgency. Things are good. And God doesn't want you to forget Him. He wants you to be mindful of your hope in Him. And Lewis didn't know it, but he's headed for more trouble. He said more. Worse than the raft. He's going to be picked up by a Japanese prisoner of warship out in the ocean, and then he's going to suffer two years in a prisoner of-war camp with the Japanese being tortured and deprived and beaten like an animal. This is, life's going to go from bad to worse. And the guy actually is closer to God on a raft, and in a prisoner of war camp, you're going to find out next week than he was when he got out on dry land, back to his wife, back to alcoholism, back to abuse, until he walks into a tent, a Ringling Brothers tent set up in downtown L.A. where Billy Graham, a young Youth for Christ preacher, 1949—I was five years old—is preaching, and Lewis gives his life to Jesus, and everything changes. He even goes back after the war to that camp where those— criminals are housed that once beat him. They're now war criminals, and now they are prisoners in the same prison that he was put in, only he goes to forgive every single one of them and to preach Christ to them, and he did, and many of them gave their lives to Jesus. Quite a phenomenal story, this guy's life. And so Lewis drifted more spiritually when his life was comfortable and normal than he ever drifted physically when he was in the raft. So we come back to these words of Paul, we glory in suffering because we know that our suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character, and character produces hope, which does not disappoint. A writer named David Fredrickson points out that in the ancient Greek-Roman world, thinkers often spoke of the connection between suffering and growth of character. Now they would write exactly what Paul's writing except for one word, and that word would be hope. They couldn't understand that. They believed the world was cold, hard, impersonal, and the glory of a human being is to use my own strength, my own reason, my own strength, my own self-sufficiency to rise above all the sufferings of life through a disciplined mind and refuse to allow any circumstance to disturb my serenity, my calmness, or my inner peace. And they couldn't see hope. Hope means you're giving up control to a higher power. Hope is kind to them a sign of weakness. Some ancients actually wrote that hope is a moral disease because it causes what should be a strong, self-reliant person to trust a power beyond themselves, to no longer be captain of your ship, master of your fate, which is what God wants us to do. And usually the people who discover it are people who through long-term addictions go into recovery, like AA. And what what are one of the 12 steps? A higher power. You can't make this. You can't get sober. You can't get free. You can't break this by yourself. All your power, your money, your self-sufficiency has not done it. You're going to need a higher power to break it, which is, what they, which is what the ancients looked on would be a form of weakness. We see it as strength, but they looked at it as weakness. In the ancient world, suffering was easier if it could be shared with somebody. Aristotle said, suffering is lightened by the sympathy of a friend. Well, nothing wrong with that. That's true. He said, sometimes one person might be willing to sacrifice, to suffer, or even die in a rare occasion for a friend. They thought that was noble. They would see something like that, applaud it and honor it, but it was something very rare. And it had limits. Listen to this. One limit was the friend must be a person of high virtue who is worthy, who deserves any sacrifice you can make. They wrote, it is not worthy to suffer for an unvirtuous person. Another limit was that if you do help somebody or sympathize with somebody, you're not allowed any suffering, not yours, not your friends, to disturb your own tranquility. And the word they had for that kind of suffering, for that kind of grief, that they looked down on was the word groaning. Groaning was the word they used for someone who was so weak in character that he allowed circumstances to disturb him. They thought groaning is what weak people do. Groaning is what people do when they can't bear what's happened, when they can't stand the disappointment, like watching the Cowboys. Yeah. And groaning sounds like this. Ah. When you get disappointed, you go, ah. When you looked at your lottery ticket, ah. When you lose out on the job you really wanted, ah. You ask a really cute girl out on a date, she slams the door in your face, oh. You find out Rick sermon's got another 30 minutes to go, oh, no, 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 you don't say that. You say, yay, God, this is good. See the the ancients, to them, mastery of the Spirit by self-mastery is what counted. They didn't want to be groaners. And if they did groan, it had to be for somebody so virtuous, so righteous, so uh, admirable uh, that it would be almost impossible to find such a person. Well, uh, to be a conqueror to them means to be self-sufficient, self-reliant. I can do it myself. That meant the watchword in the ancient world was no groaners allowed. Groaning is not tolerated. Epictetus wrote, no good man ever groans. Plutarch wrote, groaning is a sign of weakness. Cicero wrote, it is a disgrace to groan. Except for a man named Paul who wrote the strangest things about groaning. In Romans eight twenty two, he says, we know the whole creation's been groaning in the pangs of childbirth right up to this present time. Not only that, Paul says, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit groan. He says, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship. So, Paul is a groaner. He's not ashamed of it. He groans openly. Not only that, creation is groaning. Paul groans. The church groans. Human beings groan. And not only that, in our suffering, the Spirit of God intercedes for us with groanings. Nobody in the ancient world talked about a God that groans. Paul did. Jesus groaned. Jesus groans for every one of us. He groans for you, for your sin, for your messed up life. Oh, it's compassion. It's empathy with you. When when God spoke to Moses, He said, I have seen the affliction of my people. I have heard the cry of their suffering, and i am come down to deliver them. This is a God who identifies with you, enters into your suffering. It's Jesus who saw the woman touching His garment in a big crowd who wanted desperately healing from His body, and He goes, oh, He felt sorry for her. The woman at the well had five marriages, living with a guy not married to him. Ah, oh, his heart goes out in compassion to the suffering of humanity. So should ours. It is not weak to groan. It is not weak to feel compassion to people who can't help themselves. Who need help, when we see injustice, when we see racism, we see mistreatment, we see children sexually abused or murdered, when we see starvation and hunger and terrorism in other parts of the world, God groans. He enters into suffering with us. God is in the raft with you. God is on the cross. God is at the end of your rope. Jesus says He is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Nobody knew—what's that song? Sorry, I'm doing one of those flashbacks. Uh, the Kingston Trio, no, I know, nobody under 30 would even know who they were. This is back with Peter, Paul, and Mary, and folk music. And they had that song and went, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. You got to walk that lonesome valley, you got to walk it by yourself, because nobody else can walk it for you you got to walk that lonesome thing. Well, that's the way a lot of people live. They, they think they got to do it by themselves. But God says, no, 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 I, 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 I'm a God who cares for you. And, and watch this. They couldn't understand that in the ancient world. Paul says, we glory in our suffering. Suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. Car- character produces hope. And hope does not disappointment. Well how did this happen? Listen to Romans 5.8. You see that just the right time, when we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. That's what the ancients knew in Greece and Rome. Very rarely would anybody die for a righteous man, though for a very good person someone might possibly dare to die. They said, yeah, it might happen. It could happen, but probably won't happen. But he goes on to write, but God demonstrated His love for us in that while we were still sinners unworthy, undeserving, a wreck. The best man who ever lived, Christ, died for me. That's why hope doesn't disappointment. Uh, We serve the God of all hope. Uh, Paul said about a funeral, he says, we sorrow. We have sorrow in life. Everybody, whether it's a funeral, could be a loss of a job, could be a doctor saying you've got stage four, it's terminal. It could be, but he says, we sorrow but not like people that don't have any hope. We serve the God of all hope. Read 1 Corinthians 1. This is a God who paid for our sins, rose from the dead. He's alive now. This is a God who can open the Red Sea, back up the sun 10 degrees for Hezekiah, feed you with ravens. God can make a way where there is no way. He's in control of my life. And, then, and listen, to, listen to what He says here. We are more than conquerors through Him. Who loved us? Romans 8, 38, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor ISIS, nor terrorism, nor stage four cancer, nor bankruptcy, nor divorce, nor the present, nor the future, nor any power, nor height or depth, or anything else in all creation can separate me from the love of God that's in Jesus Christ our Lord. I don't have to worry whether I'm in jail or a prisoner of ISIS facing a beheading. He is with me. He loves me. He's measured my life. He will give me grace. He will never forsake me. His angels encompass me about the great martyrs of the Bible. Not all of them got delivered, but God's grace was upon every one of them. God used their life. He's in total control, and I know I have life after death, so I'm not afraid to die should that come. And God gives you grace. So I have a hope that God can do it. God can fix this problem. God can get me through this problem. And when I watch other people go through tragedies and suffering and endurance, and they don't lose hope, it encourages me. Hey, dude, you can do that. If if God did that for him, God can do that for you. It makes you more resilient. Makes you more. Uh, uh, increases your faith and your ability to say, Well, I've watched enough people go through that. I'm going to be able to go through it. It hurts, but I'm going to make it. Remember what you can take you can make. If you can take it, you can make it. And I got a high pain tolerance. I've been married 41 years. (laughs) See, oh, you're ugly. You're cruel. You're agreeing with me in your heart, but you're just trying to give me an outward form of of holiness. No, I'm just saying we we, all—listen to that hope. Listen, I've got the Holy Spirit inside of me. The Greeks said, you can do it all by yourself. They never could the Greek said, the only time I'm going to feel any compassion is is for somebody worthy of it. God says, I've got compassion for you, and you are unworthy, and you're broken, and you're wretched, and you're poor, and you're naked, and I love you, and I grieve when I see you going through this problem. And I'm going to come down, I'm going to die for you and rise from the dead. And now, nothing's ever going to be able to separate you from me and my love. Nothing. Bankruptcy, chapter 11, a lawsuit, imprisonment, whatever it is, nothing's going to separate you from me. So, I have a hope always that God's either going to get me through it, or give me grace to get through it, and bring me out on the other side, even death itself. So I don't. So I'm. I'm sad to see a friend die, but it's a sorrow. There's tears, but I know I'll be reunited. I know there's life after death, right? So I have. I have a hope, and I have the Holy Spirit in me. So when I'm tempted to lose my temper, when I want to strike back, when I want to smart off, uh, even in marriage, I don't have to. And I can't tell you how many times I've wanted to and didn't. What gives you control over your lust, over your rebellion? The Holy Spirit. I am more than a conqueror through Christ who strengthens me. For crying out loud, if you've got God inside of you, you ought to be able to handle and control anything. The tendency to want to cheat, take advantage, manipulate. I, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I don't have to lose my temper. I don't have to give way to that unabated lust. I can say no. You can say no. Joseph did it. Come on, Joseph, the wife, desperate housewife of, of Potiphar in Egypt. said, come on, sleep with me, baby. And Joseph, it says, was a handsome, hunk a hunk of burning love. And you know, the stress of working, the husband gone all the time. She saw this cute kid, and he was the only one in the house, and he ran from her. He said, I can't do this thing. He was capable, but he said, no. You can say no. Temptation comes to all of us. Well, I couldn't help myself. Yes, you can. If you're a follower of Jesus, and you have the Holy Spirit, you can say no. You have been given a will and the power to overcome anything. Yes, you can. You need a new re- revelation of who you are in Jesus. And there's not a hopeless person in this room. There's not a hopeless situation in this room. And I can do all things through Christ, and you can do. And Louis Zamperini did it. And the best part of this story is what we all did. How do you you avoid being full of hate and anger and revenge and bitterness, especially when you can get it? And Louis didn't. He said, it's like something was lifted off of me. I can't explain it, but I didn't want to kill. I didn't want to get even. I wanted to forgive. He said, it gave me power. I forgive. And you can do that. Some of you need a big dose of forgiveness to someone who's hurt you. I'm not going to give control of my life to somebody who, who tried to hurt me or be- destroy me or lie to do something evil. I'm going to forgive them, ignore it, forget it, and move on. And it's not what I do for them. It's what I do for me. I'm not going to go into prison for any idiot that does that. I'm going to stay free and fulfill my purpose and my destiny on planet Earth, and so can you. That's why hope doesn't disappointment, and why you are more than a conqueror. So, thought number one. Trouble reveals your character. What's God showing you about your character in your raft right now? God says, I didn't reveal it to condemn you. I revealed it so I could change it. I want to strengthen your faith. I want to help you to gain control in that area. Secondly, desperate trouble reveals the truth about our human condition. When we're comfortable, we don't grow. When we get real comfortable, we drift away from God. We don't mean to. It's just that we have options, and so God gets pushed further and further back with all the things that I comfort myself with until I get to the end of a rope somewhere. And then if deliverance is all I want God for when trouble disappears, then my desire for God will disappear. I can't tell you how many people in church. The only time I see them is when they're in trouble. So a couple of times, I say, oh, did you see so-and-so there? Yeah, yeah, they're in trouble. Ask our counseling department. They only show up when everything falls apart. And I thought, holy cow, if God's good enough when things fall apart, He's good enough when life's good. Just honor Him, praise Him. You're in here, corporate pray. Thank you, Jesus, for life. Somebody love me. Thank you. I got a job. I got food on the table. At least I got a car to drive. I got some folks that like me, that love me. Uh, Wonderful. Thank you for for a good life that we enjoy. Don't wait till you're in a raft with sharks jumping in there with you, and you're 66 pounds and about to die to find God. Thank you. You can find Him. But it's a whole lot easier to find Him early. What's that Fram oil commercial? You can pay me now, you can pay me later, but you're going to pay me. And God said, you can run, but you can't hide. So surrender that life, that business, those days to Him. Say, God, guide my thoughts. Thank you that my prosperity, thank you that my health, it all comes from you. I didn't earn it. I take all my greens, but at the end of the day, I can lose my life in a week if, if, if God so takes His hand off of me. And so can you. It's that simple. For more information on Rick Godwin and product available, visit SummitSA.com and click on Bookstore.